Uh, Father, we um, are so thankful uh, this boundless love that we have just sung about, this marvelous grace uh, that you have demonstrated so particularly to us in Christ. And that gives us uh, an offering of praise each day as we live, as we present all that we have to you as uh, an offering of worship. Uh, now, Father, as we talk about um, the challenges and, and the grieves of life, uh, would you meet us here and help us to see your compassion and your mercy and your grace, uh, especially in the valleys of the shadow of death and the challenges that those bring. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I had to do some math, but it, it was almost exactly 10 years ago that uh, our family went through something for the very first time. Uh, my kids, who in those days were four, ages four, seven, and well, almost four, almost seven, almost ten, um, I experienced for the first time as a dad watching my children grieve. Um, I had known grief before in different circumstances of life, and I'd seen my kids sad, right? Sad and sorry, you know, the toy breaks or, you know, someone gets run over with a scooter or something like that. But I'd never seen my children grieve until this day. We had saved up our money, and one of our favorite animals in all of life are those beautiful red-eyed tree frogs. Uh, we're a frog family, and uh, if you don't know what a, a tree frog is, it's, it's the most gorgeous frog, as frogs go, that, that you've ever seen. And so we did all the research, bought the terrarium, had the humidifying system, temperature control, all this stuff, and, and then the day came when these two teeny tiny little red-eyed tree frogs showed up, and they were the cause of much rejoicing and happiness, and so we put them in their new home, and we watched them, and took pictures, and oohed and odd, and children didn't want to go to bed because they wanted to stay up and watch the, the frogs, and it was only about a week later that we noticed one of them was not flourishing as much, and sure enough, the next day found one of the frogs dead in the bottom of the cage. And uh, that started a season of grief. And then just a few days later, the second frog also was showing signs of illness and sickness and likewise died. I have, I have this picture of, of sobbing children, uh, grieving the loss of something that they loved. And um, I don't know what you do in your family when pets die, but uh, we went out to the backyard and dug a little hole in the ground and, and put their little frog bodies to rest. But it was, it was a new experience. It's one thing to experience grief. It's another thing to watch someone you love go through grief. Um, grief usually involves a, a, a deep-seated sorrow or sadness because we've lost something we love. That, that, that's really what grief is about. And, and often it's a person that we've loved that, that we lose. Uh, you know, maybe it's, it's a death in the family, um, grandma, grandpa. Maybe it's a stillbirth or a miscarriage, a child that has yet to be known. A, um, it, it may not be death, though. It may be loss of someone you love through divorce, or a breakup, or an estrangement. 
There's a, there's a different sort of grief when we watch the loss of a loved one progressively through a disease like dementia or Alzheimer's disorder where you, you, you grieve as you're watching this person that you've known uh, lose their personhood, as it were, in your eyes. Sometimes grief happens over the loss of health or security. Cancer can do that. A loss of job or a stock market crash. We grieve over the loss of financial security or our health. We grieve over lost dreams and expectations and hopes, things that are unrealized, like a reconciliation that you wanted to to happen and, and it comes to not happen. And so you grieve that lack of reconciliation. Or maybe you've wanted to have children your whole life and you've exhausted every option. You finally come to the realization that that's not going to happen biologically. Maybe it's your dreams or hopes of a happy marriage that ends in tragedy or a future career and, and some circumstance or medical issue uh, occurs so that you realize you're not going to grow up to that career. And grief can come in sort of sharp and sudden ways like an accidental death or it can come in sort of slow progressive ways like the development of dementia. Uh, one of my historic heroes, John Newton, watched his wife decline. They were married 40 years and over 30 of those years she dealt with chronic health issues Listen to how Newton describes watching his wife decline over the decades. He said this, At length the trial which I most dreaded came upon me, meaning the death of his wife. Suspense was long, sensations were keen. My right hand, which was um, a personal way of describing his wife, my right hand was not chopped off at a stroke. I would be thankful, however, that it was not. It was sawn off by slow degrees. It was an operation of weeks and months. And maybe a grief that you've gone through in your life is like that. It's prolonged. It's over, it's over weeks and months. It's progressive. As what you love, you lose slowly over time. Well, you don't have to be alive very long. Even a four-year-old that grieves a, a dead pet recognizes that, that grief is a very common uh, circumstance in life. And uh, what I want to do in our time today is just talk about grief from the Bible's perspective. And, and what I want to do is, is try to help us to find God in the midst of our grief. That, that is, to discover what is He doing and, and how is He using that grief to draw us to Himself and uh, so just to kind of frame our conversation, uh, I, I want to talk with you about three questions to understand and respond to grief. Three questions to understand and respond to grief. And hopefully we'll, we'll find, as we try to answer those questions, what's God doing in the grief, okay? Uh, so let's, uh, let's consider question number one, what is grief? And I've sort of described it, but let me, let me just give you a definition Grief, grief is just prolonged sorrow over something that you lose. Okay, it's it's a prolonged sorrow over something that you love that you lose, uh, or maybe something that's unrealized. Grief can also be that same feeling associated with ungodly choices that we or loved ones make. So we can grieve over our own sin. We can grieve over the sin of people that we love. But but it's this idea. That, that we're, we're sorrowful, we're, we're, we have this internal sort of distress 
because something that we love is lost or unrealized. And, you know, you don't have to go far in the Bible to find examples of grief. Um, if you're reading through the Bible in some sort of Bible reading plan, no doubt you've already come across many examples of grief in Scripture. I mean, just listen to some of the examples that we hear of in the Bible. Uh, we hear about people in the Bible who grieve over lost loved ones. We think of Job and the loss of his ten children in Job chapter 1. We think of David's grief over the loss of his son Absalom in Second Samuel 18. We think about Jesus' grief as he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus in John 11. So we see in the Bible grief that happens over the lost of loved ones. The loss of loved ones. We also see in the Bible grief over ungodly choices that someone we love, uh, that made by someone that we love. So, for example, uh, Genesis 26 talks about how Esau went and married an unbelieving pagan woman, and it brought grief to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Paul grieved over his fellow Israelites' rejection of the gospel in Romans chapter 9. Jesus grieved over the hardness of heart of the Pharisees who didn't want Jesus to heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day in Mark chapter 3. So we see people grieving over the loss of loved ones. We see people grieving over ungodly choices made by someone that they love. We see, we see grief in the Bible over sinful choices that people make. Think of Peter. He's sitting there. Jesus is gone to trial. He's sitting there warming himself by the fire. And he denies Jesus three times. And the Bible tells us he went out and wept bitterly after that in his grief. Paul writes how that, that godly grief is, is something that can actually lead us to repentance. And he saw that in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians as he brought rebuke on the Corinthians' sin. And it led them to grieve over their sin and led eventually to their repentance. We see in the Bible all sorts of unrealized hopes and expectations when we realize that something we would love to have is not going to happen. Uh, probably the most common experience we see in the Bible of this is people that desperately want children but are unable to have children and, and moms and dads grieve over that. We read it in Psalm 6. We see the psalmist grieving over various life circumstances. The prophets talk about grief over the sin of the people. If you look at it, guys, the Bible is a book about grief. Uh, so when you're struggling with grief and when I'm struggling with grief, we, we, have, we have a place we can go that's going to connect with us in our grief because the Bible is all about grief. Well, what, what's the experience? Uh, what's the experience of grief like? Uh, it's hard to describe, isn't it? But you know it when you experience it. Listen to the, listen to, you don't have to turn there, listen to Psalm 31. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. That's what grief is like, right? It's a pain in here, but it's a pain that we experience physiologically as well, isn't it? Grief is both a condition of soul and body. It's internal pain, anguish, distress, sorrow, it can be manifest in body fatigue. Your, your mind is distracted. You're exceedingly exhausted. You may, you may be unable to get out of bed and, and you're, you're so tired. Or it, it may be a different kind of grief where you're hyperactive and you don't want to sleep. You don't want to be alone, so you busy yourself. But the point is, 
You're exhausted either way. It, you might experience a loss of appetite, continued weeping, body soreness. It, it's, a, it's a grief, as Psalm says, of soul and body. Grief is isolating, isn't it? Grief is an isolating experience. You feel very, very alone. You feel like no one understands. You may want people to just go away and leave you alone. It's like you want to be alone, but you don't want to be alone. Grief is overwhelming. Job, in Job chapter 6, describes the grief of losing his children, losing his livelihood, and now he's losing his health. He's, he's going to die in his own mind to the, the skin disorder that he has. And in Job chapter 6, verse 2, Job says, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balance together with my calamity. He said, if you could weigh my grief, it would overwhelm even the greatest scales. Because grief is overwhelming. Grief is debilitating. You don't feel like you can do much. Or you might be hyperactive. You're busy or not wanting to do something. Grief saps your energy. Grief brings back a flood of memories. Isn't it interesting how any little thing can bring your grief back? It can be a song. It can be an item of clothing. It can be being with a person. It can be walking into a certain place or room or circumstance, being with a certain people, an item. Grief just brings back a, a flood of memories that are triggered by many, th- many things. And it's manifest in very quickly changing emotions. In grief, you can go from being angry to being despairing to being anxious to being sleepless. Emotions like loss and shock and sorrow and anger and hopelessness and fear and disbelief and regret and guilt and all the and, and you can go back and forth in a moment. Grief is is very very overwhelming. So that that's that, that's something of what grief is as we come to understand it in the Bible and in experience. Okay, I think we probably most of us have have known something of grief. In life, the second question I, I want to focus on here as we, we move toward trying to find God in our grief is I want to talk about why is grief potentially dangerous? Grief, like a lot of emotions, can be very, very dangerous in the experience. Uh, why is grief potentially dangerous? Let me give you a couple of reasons here. First of all, because we are vulnerable to unwise responses in grief. Have you noticed this? We are at one of our most vulnerable states in life when we're going through grief. We do, th- we, we do unwise things like this in grief. We withdraw from relationships. We isolate ourselves. We even isolate and withdraw from God, from family, from Christian community. We prefer to be alone. And, and while there's a time to be alone, withdrawing from God and His people and from family can be spiritually really dangerous. Uh, sometimes... Uh, we neglect other people or other responsibilities. In grief, we can neglect our families, our jobs, our relationships. We can def- ne- neglect our bodies. We don't feel like doing much. And therefore, other things suffer. I think in, in grief, we're vulnerable to addictions or what we might call escape responses. In grief, we are more prone to turn to alcohol and drugs and binge entertainment and food and shopping and gambling and pornography and illicit relationships. Why? Because we want to find something to escape the pain. 
So we're vulnerable to, to turn to ungodly responses in that. You know, we're also vulnerable in grief because we're more susceptible to listening to the world's answers. And probably most of you have heard of the grief stages before, right? You've heard of the, the five stages of grief. Uh, that was popularized um, in a book called On Death and Dying by a woman named uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh, she was a, a psychiatrist that lived in, lived in the 20th century. She was a universalist uh, in her spiritualism. And uh, a lot of Christians, when they go through grief, they gravitate toward sort of the, the, the popular advice of the culture, which is, well, there's these stages of grief and you have to work through them. The problem is, is those stages of grief, as they're identified by Ms. Kubler-Ross, are, are simply observations that she made about people. But what's happened is they've taken those observations and, and they've become sort of a formula for healing and grief. And those things lack, that, that, that whole worldview, that whole methodology lacks important things like Jesus and the gospel and a biblical view of grief, and a biblical view of sorrow, and, and a hope of life beyond this one. Uh, and, and this is where, you know, people that research things like grief and death, that can be really helpful, but when, when observation turns into what we do about it, or as we say, description turns into prescription, we often get into trouble. And, and we end up listening to man's counsel and man's fallen judgments instead of God. And so there's a lot of Christians you know, trying to work through the grief stage and, and they don't recognize that working through grief stages is actually a very unbiblical thing to do as it's typically articulated. So we're very vulnerable to unwise responses and even to, to ungodly, unhelpful advice in grief. Grief's also dangerous because we can experience ungodly forms of grief. Unga- you say, when is grief ungodly? Grief is ungodly when it becomes excessive and hopeless. Ungodly grief happens when it is excessive and hopeless. Again, listen to Newton. Newton made a really interesting observation about people. Listen to this. Newton writes, There is something fascinating in grief. As painful as it is, we are prone to indulge it and to brood over the thoughts and circumstances which are suited like fuel to the fighter to heighten and prolong it. And maybe you've seen this in your grief. On the one hand, it's very painful. It's, it's overwhelming. It's like we, we want to get rid of it. But in another sense, we're attracted to it and to fuel it and, 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 and to be consumed. And, and I think I think part of that is that we feel like to let go of grief means we don't care about the person we just lost. Or to move away from grief, grief we're, we're you know, misguided in thinking that somehow that, that, that means we're, we're forgetting about the person. We're not loving them. We're not caring for them. But, but Newton made this interesting observation that though it's painful, we're drawn to it. And, and we seem to find a, a pleasure in heightening it and prolonging it. Well, listen to Newton again. When the Lord afflicts, it is his design that we should grieve. But in this, as in all other things, there is a certain moderation which befits a Christian and which only grace can teach. And grace teaches us not by books or by hearsay, but by experimental lessons. Beyond this, it should be evoted and guarded against as sinful 
and hurtful. He says grief, when indulged in as excessive, it preys upon the spirits, it injures our health, it indisposes us for duty, and causes us to shed tears which deserve more tears. So, so grief can become ungodly when, when it becomes excessive and when we lose sight of gospel hope through it. But you know, there's another way that grief can be dangerous. And that is when what we're grieving over is intrinsically wrong. Listen to me on this. When our grief results because we've developed an ungodly love for something that we shouldn't love. Think about this. Uh, Maybe you've seen people coming out of addiction and they talk about their addiction like a lost. They grieve over their addiction. They grieve over giving up alcohol. They grieve over the good time they had when they were high with their friends. They're grieving over sinful activity. It's because the love was set on the wrong thing. Think of um, you know, a lesbian who grieves over the loss of her partner or an adulterer that grieves over the loss of his lover. Those are ungodly grieves, uh, grieving because their love is misplaced. Their love is set on something God says is sinful. And, and you, you know where we see this? Listen to music. Do this. And I, and I, won't, I won't tell you it's particularly country music that does it, but country music does do it, like a lot of music. Listen to how much of our music is grieving over the loss of sin. You know, you, you turn on the country station and you hear the loss of the good old days, the drunken parties, illicit sin, wild living, sinful relationships. And the whole song is about grieving all those sinful activities that you're not realizing anymore. It's this, this sort of grief, grieving is sinful because we're grieving the loss of sin instead of grieving over the sin. Do you see the difference? We're, we're grieving the loss of sin instead of grieving over the sin. And I think there's a third way our grief can be potentially dangerous, and that is when we listen to our grief with the wrong ears. We listen to grief with the wrong ears. You say, what do you mean by that? Guys, it, it is essential that we listen to our grief because our grief is revealing things about us that are very important. Like all emotions, grief alerts us to important things inside of us. The problem is that we usually listen to grief as a counselor instead of an analyst. You say, what do you mean by that? We listen to grief in terms of this is what we should do. This is how we should behave. This is how we should think. And you know, and I, in our grief, we believe lies. We believe things that aren't true. So we shouldn't listen to grief as a counselor, meaning we should just do what grief tells us to do. We listen to grief as an analyst. Grief is showing us our hearts. It shows us what we love. It shows us what we value. And that's very important, isn't it? So so listen to your grief, not as a counselor, but as a spiritual analyst. Uh, And it will help us to see... What's going on inside of us, okay? So with that sort of preliminary thoughts, what is grief? What's the definition? Why is grief potentially dangerous? How can we find God in our grief? And what I want to do in the remaining time that we have is take you to three texts that help us to know how can we move toward God and find His provisions in the midst of our grief. Our first passage that we're going to look at, we we read it a moment ago, is Isaiah chapter 53. If you turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. 
How can we find God in our grief? What do we do when we are experiencing this type of loss and this sort of sorrow and internal turmoil? Well, Isaiah 53 outlines what we might call the suffering servant. This, um, as we just heard it read for us, this is a prophetic picture of the coming Messiah who would suffer for the sins of people. So you say, what's point number one? How can we find God in our grief? Here it is. Turn to Jesus who will bear our grief. Turn to Jesus who will bear our grief. Uh, we read this a moment ago. But I want to draw your attention back to verse three. Look with me at this. The text tells us he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, or your your Bible might say something about infirmities or sickness. In in those two words, what Isaiah is doing is he's saying this coming Messiah, this coming servant, is going to be afflicted with all sorts of sorrow, grief, uh, even grief, and, and to the point of being physically sick or ill is the idea. He he will suffer. He will be beaten. And he will eventually die experiencing the worst of humanity in terms of suffering and sorrow. And we might say, well, why is this special servant of God, why is this coming Messiah, why is his experience going to be so horrible? Why does God appoint that for his own son? We'll look at the next verse. Surely, what does it say? Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. You you need to see this. God brings affliction and sorrow and pain on his own son as a means of relieving us of our own sorrow and pain. Do you see that? That's the connection that Isaiah wants us to see here. Jesus became a man to experience sorrows and griefs so that he could carry our sorrows and griefs. You see, how's he going to do that? Well, he goes on, as we read a moment ago, to recognize that Jesus in his main role will be the sin bearer. He will be the substitute to receive the punishment that we deserve for our sin. But his mission includes bearing all that sin has produced in this world, including all effects of sin, things like sorrow and grief and distress and disease and death. And one day, the Bible tells us that all of these things will be no more because he has defeated them. And until then, he calls us to cast our anxiety on him, to come to him weary and heavy laden and receive his rest, knowing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. See, Jesus comes as the God man. He takes on a human nature to live and die in our place, receiving the punishment that we deserve in order to save us and to reconcile us and to bear our sin and our shame and our sorrow. That's why the writer to Hebrews is going to say uh, that, that he comes as a sympathetic high priest. Why sympathetic? Because he knows what it's like to grieve. He knows what it's like 
to, to experience these sorrows and this internal turmoil and, and the difficulty and the pain of all these things. You say, what does it mean that he, he bears our, our sorrows? How do we do that? If Jesus is the one who comes to bear our sorrows and griefs first in salvation by trusting him to, to bear our sin and then in sanctification as we grow in him and as he, he helps us with the burdens of life, the sorrows and the griefs, and the difficulties, what does that look like? How do we turn to Jesus who bears grief? Can I give you some practical ways that we do that? We do that by seeking Christ in prayer, leaning on him for strength and encouragement. This is why it's so important in our grief that we don't turn away from God, but we turn to him. Because that, that's the provision. The, the provision is in turning to God in our difficulty and knowing His grace and mercy and encouragement. We know that He's sympathetic to our griefs. We know that, that He knows what it's like to grieve over the loss of a loved one. We, we know that, that He knows what it's like to grieve over suffering. So we, we seek Christ in prayer. We, we, we seek, this is interesting, there's a little phrase, we won't turn there right now, there's a little phrase in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, you can just write that down where Paul is writing about what it's like as we grow to know Christ more and more, he throws out this little phrase and he says that I might know him more and the fellowship of his suffering. What does that mean? That that as we grow in Christ, we grow to know the fellowship of his suffering. I think what he means is, as we experience the suffering of life and we go to him as a sympathetic high priest, it's, it's like it's a way of relating to him through suffering. You say, what do you mean? Um, I know that, that some of you have gone through the grief of losing a child. Uh, maybe it was a stillborn birth, a miscarriage. Maybe it was a child that... that died in childbirth or as you know later in life or maybe it was an adult child and and the horror of that the sorrow of that the the, the turmoil of, of losing a child and and many of you have found comfort in your grief when you've met someone else who has also lost a child you know what i'm talking about and it's like all of a sudden there's a whole new level of comfort and those of you that have gone through this, you know what I'm talking about. As soon as you meet somebody, it's like there's an instant connection. This person knows what I've gone through. And there's a connection, there's a fellowship, and there's a comfort and encouragement as you talk to that person and share your burdens. I think that's what Paul's talking about in Philippians, that we go to Christ and we have fellowship with his suffering. How? In that he can relate to our suffering. He knows what it's like. He he knows our infirmities. He knows our sufferings. He feels for us. And so we seek him in prayer, but but we find a fellowship with him in suffering. We also turn to Christ in practical ways, like immersing ourselves in Scripture, where God reveals more and more of himself. We ask for specific grace and mercy to help with specific challenges. We, we know that grief is somewhat unique to every person that goes through it. And what Hebrews says is you can go to your sympathetic high priest who will relate to you and feel for you and your weaknesses and your griefs and sorrows. And then he prescribes tailored help for your particular need. And there is no 
other source that we can find such encouragement and help than other than turning to Christ as the one who bears our sorrows, bears our griefs, ultimately bearing our sin and our shame so that we can know God himself. Well, it was in the mid-19th century when an Irishman named Joseph Screven was fulfilling his dream of a military career when he suddenly fell into ill health, dashing his hopes of serving in the Irish army. Shortly after, his fiancée died in a drowning accident. Get this, the night before their wedding. He immigrated to Canada where he met another woman, eventually became engaged for a second time. Tragically, she too died shortly before their wedding due to a brief but serious illness. As a believer in Jesus, he turned his life toward helping the poor and physically disabled. And for that, he was mocked and misunderstood by neighbors and friends, which only added to his grief. And it was in the midst of all of these griefs and challenges that he heard back home in Ireland that his mother was going through a very difficult sorrow and grief of her own, that he wrote these famous words and sent them to her. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And that that hymn captures what Isaiah is getting at, what Philippians is getting at, what Hebrews is getting at, what Jesus says himself, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. As we grieve and and sorrow and, and struggle, maybe even today, we should ask ourselves this question, what grief am I carrying today that Jesus is supposed to be carrying We pursue help and grief, not by trying to work through stages, but but by seeking the help and counsel of a person. That's our takeaway here. To pursue Christ, to turn to Jesus who will bear our griefs. Well, let's look at at a second way that we can move toward God in our grief. A second passage that that helps us uh, to understand how God is working and how we can move toward him. Uh, we'll find this one in the book of 1 Thessalonians, all, in, all the way on the other end of your Bible. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And um, our, our second point here that we see in 1 Thess is this, pursue gospel hope in the midst of grief. Pursue gospel hope in the midst of grief. Uh, those of you that uh, came with me through First uh, Thessalonians last year in our Sunday school study, you'll, you'll recognize this. But there, there's a little phrase um, at, a, at a wonderful section. We think we typically think of it's a section on eschatology. It's about end times. It's about Jesus coming back and and uh, uh, bringing believers to Himself and and, and all that uh, hope and and reminders of what those end times will be like. And as he's talking about the hope of those who have died in Christ, remember Thessalonians, this, this first letter is written 
uh, very, very early on in the church, probably the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. So the church is brand new. They don't have a completed New Testament. They don't have a lot of counsel. And, and they're looking around going, how does this gospel help us to cope when friends and loved ones die? And, and what happens to them after they die? And, and you know, we, we hear about this resurrection thing, Paul. And, and what's the resurrection? And what does that mean? And, and what, what hope for our loved ones do we have? So, so he talks about that in chapter 4 in verse 13 when he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And he goes on to, to talk about the security of believers that have died in Christ and even the future security of believers who will be raptured one day to be with Christ. Um, and, and, and the takeaway in verse 17, the, the takeaway of the hope of his message in verse 17 there is he says, so we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. You say, what's Paul saying? He's saying when we're grieving, when we're suffering, when we're sorrowing, we need to pursue gospel hope in the midst of that grief. See, the, the experience of grief, that you, listen to me here, the experience of grief does not necessarily mean that you're not honor, honoring God. Faith and grief can coexist. How do we know? How do we know that faith and grief can coexist, that, that there is... That grief can be exemplary of a healthy Christian. How do we know that? Because Jesus grieved. Jesus grieved over the sin and sorrow of people. He grieved over the hardness of heart. He grieved over his friend Lazarus who died. Even though he was going to resurrect him, he still grieved over that loss. So faith and grief can coexist. But, but hear me. Grief is not automatically a godly response. Grief is not automatically a godly response. In fact, we've talked about some of the dangers that grief can be excessive. It can be hopeless. And what that means is when we go through grief, we have to be active in pursuing gospel hope in the midst of that grief. Looking back at verse 14, he says uh, we we believe, right? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. See, that shows us that the gospel itself is the anchor and foundation of the hope that we have in grief. And like Paul's doing here with the Thessalonians, what we need to do is intentionally remind ourselves and trust the truths and promises of Scripture. Like in verse 14 there, Jesus died and rose again. The gospel is the foundation. Then in verses 14 to 17, he recounts some of the promises of God about the security of the believer and the hope of eternal life and the resurrection from the dead. And so, so we, we draw near to those promises and those truths in Scripture to find gospel hope in the midst of our grief. And, and you may find in your grief or as you come alongside others in grief that there are particular things that are helpful. When we study men and women in the Bible that are grieving over something, we find that there are certain truths that especially help them in grief. I'll just give you a few of these. Focusing on the goodness of God, the goodness of God in grief. Psalm 27 says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Or, or what Nahum says, that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. So, so the goodness of God is a, a wonderful source, an appropriate source of meditation. 
Or the providence of God would be another example. God's sovereign rule and control over all things. Uh, Psalm 103 talks about his sovereignty ruling over all. Ephesians talks about how God works all things after the counsel of his will. And, and you know what that does? The, the, the care of God, the providence of God over the loss in our life assures us of permission to move on. Do, do you see that? Because I trust that what happened to my friend or my loved one is a part of God's good and wise and fatherly plan that I can trust him. I can submit to him and, and I, that gives me freedom to move on because I know my heavenly father is working in and through the grief. Another example to focus on would be the faithfulness of God. We, we learn this in Lamentations chapter 3. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the nearness of God. I love this. The end of Psalm 73 as Asaph is grieving and, and discouraged and he's dealing with envy and, and you know, wicked people flourishing and, and he almost abandons his faith. And at the very end of the Psalm, God rescues him from his grief. And you remember what he says? He says, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And he remembers that God is with him and God won't leave him or forsake him. As Paul says to the Philippians, the God of peace will be with you. Just as a real practical part of this, um, I, I talked about how the wrong sort of songs feed the wrong kind of grief. Did you know the right type of songs can help you in your grief? That's why, that's why the, the book that most talks about grief in the Bible, the Psalms, is a song book. That's intentional because one of the ways God meets us in grief is when we sing to him and when we sing toward him, let hymns and biblically focused songs strike major chords of gospel hope to the minor keys of grief in your heart that you experience. And, and music can be such a, a precious help to move toward God in grief. You know, we lose hope in grief when we passively follow its dictates. So don't let grief dominate the conversation in your head. Don't listen to your grief as a master to be obeyed. Engage your grief in dialogue with the character of God, the promises of God, the truths of God centered on the gospel of Jesus. Let your grief illuminate struggles in your heart so that you can pursue Christ in specific ways. That's how God redeems grief. That's what he's doing to work in us. We turn to Jesus who bears grief. We pursue gospel hope in the midst of grief. Let's look at one final provision here, how, how we can find God and pursue God in the midst of our grief. One more passage. You can back up to 2 Corinthians, and it's this. In time, strive to redeem your grief by blessing others. In time, strive to redeem your grief by blessing others. This is interesting. I mentioned uh, in the previous book, 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to write a letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians where he is, he is designing in that letter to bring the Corinthians to grief over their sin. They're struggling with sin. They're tolerating false teachers. And so Paul writes a, a strong letter of admonition. And that sorrowful letter brings godly grief 
that produces the sorrow that leads to repentance, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians. And it's interesting that at the beginning of the book of 2 Corinthians, he talks about what, what's part of God's aim in us going through seasons of grief. And he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is interesting. I remember having this question early on in my Christian life, and maybe you've had this question too. Why doesn't God just eliminate suffering? Can he do that? Sure, he can do that. Why doesn't he just eradicate suffering and remove suffering from the world? If Christ has conquered it, if if the work of the cross is done and complete, why does God allow it? Why does he allow grief to continue? And 2 Corinthians helps us to answer that question. Because it brings God more glory to allow grief and redeem it than it does to remove it. Redeeming grief brings God more glory than just eradicating suffering from the world. And, and, and that's the beauty of this picture. See, what, this, what Paul is describing here in the Corinthians is that God comforts us in our suffering. He brings us encouragement. He gives us hope. Why? So that we can take that hope and we can go share it with someone else. It's it's this beautiful picture of God comforts me and then I take that comfort and I pass it on to someone else so that God can comfort them too. God comforts them, they take that comfort, they go find someone who's suffering and they pass it on to them so that God can comfort them. It's this beautiful picture of how God multiplies his comfort and mercy by utilizing the body of Christ to share and to um, help others to experience that same uh, comfort and encouragement in brief. He gives us opportunity to share encouragement with someone else. And, and I, bet, I bet that if we were to go around the room, you would say, you know what, Pastor Keith, that happened to me. That at some point in your grief or sorrow, God brought someone to help you to know Christ's encouragement through your grief and your suffering, and you grew in hope. And I bet some of you have have seen this and you've said, I can go share that with someone else that's lost a relative, that's lost a baby, that's lost hope of having children, that's had cancer and lost hope of, you know, that 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 dream retirement that I thought I was going to have. And that's the beauty of God, how God magnifies encouragement and hope around the gospel in the world. It brings God more glory to allow suffering to exist and redeem it in that way than it does to eradicate it. Now, this is not something to, pr- to pursue right away. This is where God is taking you in grief. It's a journey to get there. So as we grieve, <clears throat> we focus on today. We trust him for needed grace today. But in time, he will give us the chance to redeem our grief by blessing someone else who is going through a similar grief. And you know what that does? It reminds us that one of God's most gracious provisions to help us in grief is the body of Christ. Maybe you aren't experiencing grief right now personally, but you know somebody who is. Engage them. 
Pray for them. Weep with those who weep. Listen to them. Love them. As Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians, comfort one another with encouraging words. Point them to Christ who will bear our sorrows and griefs and who conquered suffering and redeems it for good. The body of Christ is necessary as, as the arms and feet, as it were, of Jesus to come around hurting people and to redeem and point them to the same comfort that they've known in Christ himself. Well, I mentioned Newton at the beginning of my message today, his marriage for 40 years to his dear wife, Polly. They were the best of friends. And as I mentioned, she developed many chronic health issues. So for over three decades of their marriage, she's in bed for months at a time. She went through cancer. She had chronic pain. She went through a stage where uh, at one point, She kind of lost her mind and she turned on Newton and she lost gospel hope. That that came back at the end of life. And finally, um, a doctor discovered a tumor the size of a lemon in her chest. And she eventually died of breast cancer um, just over 40 years after they were married. Listen, listen to how Newton brings together everything that we've talked about from Isaiah to first Thessalonians to second Corinthians. Listen to how Newton brings this together as he talks about his wife. After she was gone, I was not supported by lively, sensible consolations. Listen to this. But by being enabled to realize to my mind some great and leading truths of the word of God, I saw what indeed I knew before. But never till then so strongly and so clearly perceived that as a sinner, I had no right. And as a believer, I could have no reason to complain. Listen to this. I considered her as a loan, which he had lent her to me and had a right to resume whenever he pleased. And that as I had deserved to forfeit her every day from the first, it became me rather to be thankful that she was spared to me so long than to resign her with reluctance when called for. Farther, that his sovereignty was connected with infinite wisdom and goodness. And that consequently, if it were possible for me to alter any part of his plan, I could only spoil it. That such a short-sighted creature as I, so blind to the possible consequences of my own wishes, was not only unworthy, but unable to choose well for myself. And that it was therefore my great mercy and privilege that the Lord had condescended to choose for me. When my wife died, the world seemed to die with her. I see little now but my ministry and my Christian profession to make a continuance in life for a single day desirable, though I am willing to wait my appointed time. If the world cannot restore her to me, not that I have the remotest wish that her return was possible, it can do nothing for me. The Bank of England is too poor to compensate for such a loss as mine. Listen to this. But the Lord, the all-sufficient God, speaks and it is done. Let those who know him and trust him be of good courage. He can give them strength according to their day. He can increase their strength as their trials are increased to any assignable degree. And what he can do, he has promised he will do. The power and faithfulness on which the successive changes of day and night and seasons of the years depend and which uphold the stars in their orbits is equally engaged to support his people and to lead them safely 
and unhurt through floods and flames. And though I believe she has never been, and though I believe she has never been and probably will never be out of my waking thoughts for five minutes at a time, though I sleep in the bed in which she suffered and languished so long, I have had not one uncomfortable day nor one restless night since she left me. I have lost a right hand, which I cannot but miss continually, but the Lord enables me to go on cheerfully without it. That's how God rescues us in the midst of grief. Let's pray.